Hi, and welcome to I'll Go First. I'm your host, Jessica Minhas. On this episode, Chris Anderson joins us. He is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse and other forms of trauma and an advocate for healing. We talk about how there isn't a one-size-fits-all definition for trauma, grooming, and the emotional impact of trauma on men and boys, and how Chris learned to accept and love himself. I should also mention, while we don't go into detail, we do talk about distressing themes around sexual abuse on this episode, so please be mindful. I really felt so encouraged doing this interview, and I really am excited to hear what you think. Let's get started. Well, hi, Chris. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Jessica. Oh, thanks for having me. (laughs) We are currently going through COVID at the moment. Where are you right now? I'm in my apartment. I even have, see, and and just as proof, here's my mask. I've got my mask. I'm one of, I'm one of the good people. Did you, did you make that mask? No, no. This is one we ordered. Although I do have a video up where I actually showed people how to make masks out of a regular t-shirt. No sew masks with just a, uh, uh, you can get 10 masks out of an adult extra large cotton t-shirt with just a pair of scissors. Wow. Yeah, and they actually hold up really well. I've seen loads of advertisement now for designer masks and... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's the fashion accessory of the summer. Well, I'm really excited to have you on because I think this is such a topic that isn't spoken about enough, and it's something that's really close to my heart. Chris Anderson, I'm just going to give you the proper introduction. He is a survivor of sexual abuse, domestic violence, and other forms of trauma. He is an author, peer advocate for survivors, and an expert and a trauma theorist on em- the emotional impact of trauma on men and boys. You've been in the advocacy space for a really long time. I first started almost about t- maybe almost 10 years ago now. There was a conference that an organization called Male Survivor used to put on fairly regularly that brought together survivors and professionals. And one of the cool things about their conferences was they actually gave survivors a platform and opportunity to do presentations. And I decided that somebody needed to tell all of the therapists what they were doing wrong. And they let me do it. How did the therapist take it? Uh, Actually, very well. And actually, one of the people who I'm still very close with as in terms of colleague and a trauma professional, a guy by the name of Dr. Stephen Gold, who used to be one of the presidents of the APA's Division of Trauma Psychology and runs an amazing program called the Trauma Resolution Integration Program at Nova Southeastern University. He actually was a keynote speaker that year and attended my talk. The talk was called 10 Things Therapists Should Know About Survivors. And he was extraordinarily kind and supportive. And actually, we developed a really good working relationship coming out of that conference and collaborated on a number of projects over the years. So so you've spoken publicly a lot about your story. Yes. And I have so many questions about how a survivor comes forward. I think that's really powerful. I want to take mm-hmm. us back a little bit. When did you first realize your childhood was different? Well, there's two sort of answers to that question. I knew from a very, very early age that I was in challenging, weird circumstances. But that's sort of a different 
question than when did I realize I was a survivor mm. in a more in the more sort of modern sense of how we think of trauma survivors. And that actually didn't happen until I was in my early 30s. So I'm in my mid 40s now for frame of reference. But when I was growing up, it was pretty obvious that I was in a different set of circumstances than many of the kids around me. Our house was pretty disheveled and dirty, and we didn't necessarily live in the best part of town. And my parents screamed and fought with one another whenever they were together all the time. And having the opportunity, the rare times when I did go around to other kids' houses, I could see that there was just something fundamentally different about my environment. And even at three, four, five years of age, I knew something wasn't quite right, but you have no frame of reference as a child that young to be able to, to contextualize or understand. I mean, really, you're just trying to, you know, when you're in what is more or less a survival situation, even at that young of an age, you're basically just doing what you can to endure. And that's kind of what, you know, where I was for, for most of my childhood. And, you know, one of the challenges that that then sets somebody up for much later in life is it sort of creates not just a, a, a cognitive frame of reference when sort of you start building a backstory about your self-worth yeah. and whether you're good enough to be loved or, you know, how you uh, get by in terms of building relationships with other people. It also lays down very, very deep neurological grooves in your brain that really do have a strong impact on how you process your experience of the world. And that was one of the things that really speaks to the deep wounds that childhood trauma truly cause on, on truly an emotional and a physiological level. That again, it's, it's one of these things that a lot of people I don't think ever talk about quite enough because we don't, we haven't integrated a, a real understanding of how trauma is both a physical and an emotional injury to the self. What is trauma? Well, you know, that's a really great question. And in my time going around and doing public speaking, sharing my story, and also talking about issues of sexual abuse of boys and men and the impacts of it, one of the questions that I would often ask audiences of professionals from psychological, social work, law enforcement backgrounds, I would often ask them that question very few people have a good answer. And that speaks to one of the critical issues around trauma is we don't have a good def standard definition of it. So I will share with you the definition that I've worked on developing over the years. And let me preface this by saying, I think this is a right definition. It is not the right definition. So as with a lot of the things that I say, I like to come up with correct answers or good, useful answers, but I don't try to pretend that this is the singular right answer. So my definition of trauma uh, is basically this. It is any form of spiritual, physical, or emotional harm that a person experiences or witnesses while in a position of powerlessness to prevent it. I love that you say witnesses, because I would not think of that immediately. When I think of trauma, I don't think of witnessing an event. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things that a lot of the early trauma theorists out there, folks like Judith Butler, you know, wrote about and made a very, very clear point on is really highlighting the fact that the experience of 
it's that combination of the experience of powerlessness and either experiencing or witnessing harm that that seem to be the key elements of a traumatic experience or a traumatic moment. And I think it's always important to highlight that it, trauma isn't necessarily always something that you experience directly and personally as, as a physical injury. One of the examples in Butler's book, she, she writes about, she uses 9-11 as an experience of communal trauma which those of us who are alive and remember that moment have it sort of seared into our consciousness. One of the things that's so powerful about that is the mass witnessing of catastrophic, devastating harm, literally the death and destruction of thousands of people. But the way in which we were all seeing it, we were, most of us were seeing it from a great distance and were unable to do anything else and just basically stop and see it. Yeah. And we were all sort of left. And one of the you know, terrible things was we saw those images and have continued to see those images repeated over and over and over and over again. And one of the reasons is because we as a species, as animals, are have become sort of hardwired to stay locked in on those kinds of scenes of danger and threat and chaos. It's the, it's the fight, flight, or freeze response. Yeah. And what many people don't realize is freeze is usually what comes first. Physiologically speaking, what happens is, is our bodies, either for a split second or for some period of time, actually stop. Our eyes get frozen and locked in on the source of threat so that we, our brains can process it. Yeah, I mean, that immobility, just, I, I just think of just times where I've been triggered or had flashbacks and that feeling of just mm -hmm. being frozen and then trying to move past it. My therapist one time said to me, I thought this was so eloquent. She said, Jessica, it's time to be awake now mm -hmm. to try and like stay yeah. present with everything. Yeah, I love also that you said earlier about when you experience trauma or you're in a home of childhood abuse, sort of like that adaptability to to stuff so that you can survive it. And one thing that you and I talked about prior to this interview was about this idea of grooming and that grooming mm -hmm. and manipulation is not something we often think about when it comes to the kind of onset of sexual abuse specifically. Right. You know, and I, I found in my work with survivors from all different backgrounds and all different genders, not just male and female, but truly all the full gender spectrum. One of the very, very common experiences that especially childhood survivors report having gone through is some form of grooming. This is an issue that I think, you know, if people who are on the front lines, who understand these dynamics really truly get it. Yeah. People who fortunately for their life circumstances haven't been exposed to these issues don't really understand. And we tend to look at stories from survivors of sexual abuse and just go, well, if it was such a terrible experience, why didn't you run away? Why didn't you leave? Didn't, didn't, didn't you know better? And we create this sort of That's false narrative that places blame onto the survivor. Yeah. So the grooming dynamic is one where what most and the greatest risk to the pot to to all of us is not sort of singular one off violators, shall we say, 
what research has shown is that there are a tremendous number, a far larger number of serial preferential offenders out there who actually target vulnerable children or vulnerable teens because that's their preferred age range. And sorry to maybe to get, I'm trying to be very careful not to get too graphic because I don't want to have people sort of flee in, in disgust from the discussion here, but I think it's important to be blunt and honest about what these dynamics really look like. And there are a far larger number than people want to imagine of these serial preferential offenders who put themselves in a position to have access to large numbers of children or teens or even young adults that correspond to the age range that they prefer. And what they will do is they'll put themselves in positions either by being, let's say, the coach of a youth sports team or the friendly neighbor, which is what happened in my case, who invites all the neighborhood kids around and has a safe house that he's the cool person who will let you stay up and watch wrestling. Again, this is part of my backstory. I have candy and sweets there. And how old were you in this? Because I think the grooming thing is just so nuanced and, like mm -hmm. you said, so hard to to get if you are on the outside. Do you mind sort of painting right. a picture of what that looked like in your story? I grew up in a very broken, chaotic, dysfunctional home. A few streets over from the house that I grew up in, there was a guy who moved in right about the time I was between eight and 10 years old. And he had a kid that was staying with him. And I realized looking back now, I always assumed it was his son. I actually don't know if that's the case, if it was his biological son or not. But there was a kid that was in this house as well that was about my age. We became friendly, which, by the way, is another part, can be another aspect of the grooming process. Manipulators and serial perpetrators will oftentimes have other victims yeah. that they have alongside that become sort of ambassadors or, or they'll, they'll bring other people in because it sort of lowers the, the risk. For instance, the Jeffrey Epstein story, Epstein famously was paying other girls to go out and bring uh, their friends to into his, yeah, to recruit, which, you know, and I'm sure you know quite a bit about that from your background in the trafficking world. The very same dynamic oftentimes can happen with childhood sexual abuse perpetrators where they'll have a one kid that goes out and will sometimes help identify and bring in other kids. And that was the case in, in my story as well. So I would go over and I would start playing with this other boy. Was he much older? No, no, he was, we were, we were about the same age. Wow. Yeah. And in, in a way, one of the things that was really interesting was this was one of the few kids in my entire neighborhood who didn't make fun of me. So yeah. I automatically felt a little bit safer around him. Yeah. And then this was back in the eighties when Hulk Hogan and world wrestling yeah. stuff was happening. And I would go over and we would watch videotapes because he had videotapes of matches and stuff in the afternoons after school. And then that we would talk about it and he was very friendly with me. He helped me start to talk through some of the problems that I had. And in terms of the grooming process, what he was doing was very strategically a isolating me by keeping me in his home, either by myself or with the other boy at times. We were watching and I was getting material that, in this case, it wasn't necessarily pornographic by any stretch of the imagination, but it was stuff that felt a little illicit. Mm -hmm. You know, I felt like I was watching something that made me a little stuff that I wouldn't maybe have access to back at home by myself. More adult kind of stuff, which becomes a temptation for kids, obviously. 
although there are certainly many, many perpetrators out there who do expose kids to pornography at a very early age, and especially now it's an even bigger issue than it ever was back in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And then in to sort of wrap up how the sort of circle got closed, as it were, as it were he eventually asked me, he said, wouldn't it be cool if you and this other boy pretended to be wrestlers and wrestle WWF style? And I didn't know what that meant at the time. So he said, well, you know, in your underwear. And, you know, the first, the first clear memory I have of a truly abusive moment was I remember I felt a little weird, but the boy said, yeah, sure, that sounds like fun. And I remember us wrestling in our underwear, and I remember him taking pictures of it. Wow. And then in a, the second and the more significant event was there was one time I went over to the house, and the boy wasn't there. And the guy asked me if I wanted to wrestle with him WWF style. And I knew in that moment something was very wrong. But going back to what we were talking about before, the freeze response. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things that I don't have clear memories of. And for a period of time, a lot of my memory is sort of gone from that time. But I remember a couple of things very clearly. One, One that's probably the easiest to share in terms of not being the most graphic is I remember being on his bed and turning my head to the side and there was an air conditioner in the window and the air conditioner was running. And I remember the sound of that air conditioner because that's actually how I, that's where I went. Mm -hmm. My, my focus, everything went into that sound and that noise. And I just froze and locked into that. And that's coming sort of back into the future. It's sort of interesting now to look back on some of those memories and first go, I'm actually, I felt shame for a number of years. I very clearly remember what was done to me, but I didn't have a context or a way to frame it. I knew something bad was, had occurred, but it, it just felt like I was an idiot. I clearly, this was my fault. I, I didn't run away. I didnn't fight back. Something, something, I let somebody do. Yeah. I, and I internalized all of that. I also had a lot of shame because I don't remember the guy's name. I can bring you to the house where it occurred. I could draw you a floor plan of the house. I could explain the color of his bedroom, but I don't remember his name. I'm just smiling because what I hear you, it's so weird to say I'm smiling, but I can, I resonate with that because I think that's such a unique, I don't know. It's just like such a unique experience with, it makes me kind of teary eyed because I know that if from the outside, it doesn't make sense necessarily, but I know even with my experiences, there are a few where I, for sure, even now looking back, I'm like, how do I not remember these very, very important details that potentially could have helped mm-hmm. could prosecute or get the guy in prison or it's like, how do I not remember those? And I think for me, that really played on the shame mechanism when I talked to people about it because it invalidated I guess Absolutely. it dism- became dismissive and to that narration that you mentioned earlier, why didn't you just run or how many times does this need to happen before you would have left or how come you didn't just tell anybody? So yeah, it's, it, sorry that I am kind of like nodding my head and like, I'm just like, wow, it's so nice to hear somebody else say that. I'm, I'm very glad that you are because it helps normalize and reinforce that my experiences that this is all I don't want to say I don't want to use the word normal because that gets overused quite a lot and it becomes sort of a value judgment in a lot of ways. 
And this is one of the reasons why I became so fascinated with trauma theory and the neurobiology of trauma, because I think it, it's a very helpful framework that helps us both understand our own personal experiences of abuse and hardship and trauma, but I think it also helps connect us to one another because when we use trauma, we can build bridges using the sort of the blocks of trauma theory to help understand one another's experiences and these universal parts of what it means to be vulnerable, what it means to be abused, what it means to be harmed, what it means to be powerless, which fundamentally at the end of the day, I think is part of what it means to be human. There's this narrative out there, especially in this moment in history, that sort of privileges the idea that you have to be strong, you have to be invulnerable, you have to fight, you have to defend, you have to show no vulnerability. And I just find that that storyline so infuriating because not only does it cause so much additional harm and injury when it's played out in the ways that we're seeing play out right now, it blocks us from truly understanding what the core experience of being an alive person or a live thing in this universe is and it's that we all experience vulnerability mm, yeah we all are going to go through times where we are unable to protect ourselves or protect others or stop harm from you know from happening and how do we find ways to navigate that communicate it we haven't yet developed that language and that skill set that's why i love the work you're doing and i so honor your bravery and your courage for doing this work. It's it's hard work to be in an advocate position and to keep to keep going. It's really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. You had mentioned yeah. that you were already in a vulnerable situation in your home. Yes. And this kind of built upon that vulnerability. How long did this go on? This this relationship and dynamic? Because I think that's kind of unique in that some people will think, oh, this was just, why couldn't you get away? It's like, well, then it was just this isolated incident. But there are all these other push-pull factors that mm -hmm. keep you, keep somebody locked into a scenario that, especially as a kid, you don't have the context to get out of. Yeah, that's a really good question. And I don't have a good answer for you. Because I don't really know how long I spent going over to this person's house um, after that, because there was a moment, sort of like, you know, when I talked about the air conditioner and I kind of like froze, in some ways, it's almost like my internal memory recording system also just froze at that moment in time. So there's a good year, two years of my childhood that just don't exist in my memory. And I honestly don't know when during that period of time I stopped seeing that person. What I can tell you is at some point in time between that age and maybe like 12 or 13 years old, I was not going there anymore. And the person left the neighborhood. The person moved away. So that said, it also is important to highlight that for those who don't know, the ACEs score is the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. My ACEs score is six. Again, we'll contextualize that. But the important thing right now to say is I experienced, I survived six different types of the most common and harmful childhood traumas. 
The sexual abuse was one of those six. The other five were continuing and ongoing throughout all of my childhood. So they both predated that sexual abuse and continued afterwards. And so for me, in some ways, it's important to highlight that the sexual abuse was one of those things, and it did happen within a limited window of time. But because it happened within this broader context of, of greater childhood trauma, it didn't feel as though I was somehow, I had escaped something. It didn't feel like I had overcome something because I was still, you know, battling the, the chaos in my own home. And then, you know, later on in life, you know, my father became ill and then he got blind and then he passed away when I was 19, you know, and there were still other issues go ongoing with my mother. So uh, the, it never really felt like, and still in many ways today, doesn't feel like I've overcome everything. And that's one of the things that I'm still kind of battling. What do you think overcoming is? What is healthy? <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, I mean, one thing that you and I talked about before is what is normal. Right. Exactly. One of the things my therapist actually is, she's very strong on, you know, normal is in some ways a very bad word. <laughs> because A, it's poorly defined. And B, it tends to be a very shaming word. Because we all want to be normal, but we don't know what normal is. And we look down on other people that we think aren't normal. Yeah, I mean, I definitely thought for a long time, this isn't normal. But I didn't have any reference for what is normal. Right. One of my favorite things to do when I would do talks and trainings with professionals, especially psychologists. Many of us in this field, you know, advocacy or just people who have sort of become their own personal advocates along their healing and emotional healing journey, know what the dreaded DSM is, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, the way in which psychologists and psychiatrists number stamp all of the things that are wrong with you and categorize you, pathologize us. One of the things that the DSM doesn't have is a definition of normal or healthy. The DSM will help you understand every single possible way that we know right now that, you know, you're not healthy or that you're psychologically damaged or dysfunctional, but there's no frame of reference for what healthy actually is. And that's part of, part of that. Yeah, it's not even necessarily point. an endemic problem with psychology per se. It's also an issue with Western medicine in a lot of ways. And I don't want to try and like go off on a tangent or a rant about Western medicine is evil. It's I'm not, I don't feel that way or something. It's just, it's important to understand the frameworks that these tools have been developed in. And the framework of Western medicine is one that's a very pathological framework in the sense of it breaks everything down into very small parts and it helps us identify in a very granular level things that might not be functioning well or healthily. And that's a very powerful tool. It's allowed us to build up this extraordinary set of tools and resources and treatments for a wide range of things that are wrong. But it doesn't necessarily help us answer what is at, I think, the core for certainly for many survivors, what does it mean to be healthy? How can I be functional? And even though I have ample evidence of the fact that I am worthy of being loved, that I am a strong person, that I am a capable person, that I am a responsible person, the wound that I still carry inside and the, the, the disconnect between 
the the painful self image that was forged in my childhood and the reality of who and what I am today, they're constantly still in conflict. Can you wrap some language around what that negative self image is? Because I have an idea of what mine oh, is. Sure. It's very well, clear, but the to your point, yeah. the healthy part of me, I'm like, oh, I don't, yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I'll give you a couple of words, and I'll and I'll try and illustrate with a very clear example. My sort of inner dialogue is: I'm not smart enough. I'm not attractive. I'm not strong. I'm not capable of doing good work. Everybody around me sees the sees the badness that I I manifest just by breathing, and they and they judge me for it. Same, same, all the things. Yep. Right. Yep. I actually had a very interesting experience a couple of years ago, starting a new job for a new a new boss. Where for the first year or so, I found myself constantly fighting this sort of weird disconnect between. I knew I was doing a good job and he was telling me at times that I would do a good job. But then every now and again, obviously, as we all do, I would make a mistake or something wouldn't hurt. And we would have this sort of back and forth sometimes where, and he would never get fully angry or, you know, or heated with me, but I felt like almost like I was being physically hit whenever mm-hmm. he gave me yeah, you know, feedback yeah. that was negative. And finally, there was one day and I'll never forget this, and and a lot of it, and I can't say what it was that like switched, but I think, and this is sort of a glimpse into what I think emotional healing can look like sometimes, because it wasn't like I had read something that made sense, and all of a sudden this the wool fell from my eyes, and all of a sudden my perspective got clearer. But I've been I've been doing work in therapy for over a decade now to try and piece things back together again and deal with that conflict, and. One day, as a result of all of that trauma work that I've been doing personally and the love that I've been getting and the nourishment that I've been getting, like all of a sudden, one day he gave me some bitter piece of feedback about something that he wanted me to do better. And something in my head clicked and went, oh, he's not angry at me. He's trying to help me get better. That's so cool. And mind you, this happened three years ago about. So this isn't something that's like an old, like, yeah, in my 20s, I had this moment of healing. Like, no, this is something that I'm 45 right now. I was 42, 43 years old when this happened. Something finally clicked and I was able to perceive that moment differently than I had all of those similar moments previously in my past. When you think back about what happened, when did you think oh, this is actually affecting my life. Because I think when I think about my personal story and, and when we have talked to our listeners, something that comes up sometimes is, well, it wasn't that bad. I mean, I don't know if anything really happened. I, don't, I mean, it's not really like, and then fill in all the blanks. Yeah. For me, my experience may be slightly different. Well, of course, everybody's experience is unique. I came out of my childhood, my teen years, honestly feeling like I was covered in this dirty sludge of shame and terribleness and awfulness. And it was borderline miraculous that I was ever functional at all. And 
I started, once I got some separation from the home that was so toxic, that helped me start to, I guess, kind of see parts of myself as some of the sludge slowly started like dripping off of me, that I could start to see a little bit of the truth that maybe lay underneath. But I always knew from a very, very early age that I was going to need to do a lot of work once I got out of the toxicity to try and put pieces together again. And where that knowledge came from, where that wisdom came from, I have no idea. It was just something that I've always had inside of me. And thank goodness for that. Yeah, I feel the same. And it sounds like you kind of can relate to this, just the desire to want to get better, to like want to heal, even though it's really hard and painful. Yeah. But like just that inner engine that keeps going to want to try and get better. Something that I was thinking about, and because you mentioned your dad, something I've been kind of wrestling through recently is, oh, you know, I grew up with just my grandfather and at the end of his Mm. life, he was pretty abusive, but at the end of his life, when I was 18, he got sick Mm. and I was supposed to go to university, but there was, even though I wanted to go and I got scholarship, I was like, there's no way that I can leave this man just on my own. Respons- responsibility, obligation, all of those things. And actually this morning I was thinking of it because he, he was, he was so, he got so ugly and mean at the end of his life. And when he ended up passing, he was like, he never went to the doctor. So he was just like bleeding out of every, it's like his insides were melting. And I remember when I put him in the hospital, he was so angry with me about how I could do this to him. And it was such a mind trip because it's like all this stuff happened between us with the regards to the emotional abuse and the hitting and whatnot. And then like, I'm putting you in the hospital to try and help you get better, but you're angry at me for that. And just the duality of living in an abusive household and then having your parent pass and not really knowing how, at least I'll speak for myself. I don't know how to engage with that. And we've had a few guests on the show who talk about this abuse that happened with their caretaker. And then now mm-hmm. what does it look like to have a relationship with them or they've passed right? and it's yeah, like this mind trip. How did you process that? You know, in, I'll say I was very fortunate in certain ways, even though both of them, my parents were not capable because of their own woundedness and their own flaws to be caregivers to me. One of the very few things that my dad, I can say truly did that made a significant difference for me over the course of the rest of my life was there was a moment as he was literally falling apart. He, he had diabetes that he never treated. So he started going blind. I became his caregiver my senior year of high school because my parents were getting a Same. divorce at that moment in time. And there was a moment that I'll never forget. My dad looked at me with tears in his eyes and he apologized to me for not being the kind of father and, and giving me the kind of support that he had hoped that he had been, would have been able to do. And I didn't know how to process it at the time. I just kind of like took it as like, okay, there's a seed that's been planted. Okay. Thanks dad. I'm (laughs) going to take the car and leave for, for a little while. But that experience, I think, actually wound up being one of the most healing things for me because it allowed me to sort of put a capstone on a lot of stuff and look back on him and, and see him as a more, because he 
and I'll frame this within, try and put this back within the trauma framework and talking about building that bridge because he exposed his vulnerability to me in that way and took accountability and ownership. It's not like he could do anything to undo all of the stuff, but he at least acknowledged that I had been hurt, his role in it, and just acknowledged in that brief moment that we shared pain. That made such a difference. It was something that my mother never was capable of doing. That was actually my next question, because thinking of our listeners who might be saying, well, yeah, but Mm -hmm. I never had that moment with my caretaker. Like, what? how do you approach your mom in this way, given that she's the opposite? Well, fortunately, my mother has passed away as well. And I'll tell you one of the crazy, this is one of those like toss out lines that I'll throw out just for shock value sometimes, because I love to see people's reaction to it. I'm one of those people in this world who the best thing my parents ever did for me was die when I was young, because it took a lot of burden off of my shoulders and allowed me a clear path moving forward into my future. And I know that in a, as crazy as it sounds to say it, but this is the nature of trauma and the way our world, you know, there, there's no clean, there's very few clean stories in this world. It, it made it a lot easier for me to pursue my life on my own terms. So with my mom, she was somebody who was in many ways even more functionally damaged emotionally and intellectually than, than my dad was. My dad was, uh, you know, I would say average sort of guy. My mom was further down the spectrum of functionality, shall we say. And she was somebody who just could not see anything other than her own woundedness and the unfairness of the world to her. Eventually, I was able to get to a point once, again, sort of talking about that, if you get to a place where you can get some distance away from the toxicity, as that sludge drips away a little bit, and if you're able to do some cleansing work and some healing work, and then sometimes you can look at some of those other people who were so harmful in, in your life and sometimes at least see that they themselves are also human beings who've experienced woundedness and trauma. And it doesn't necessarily have to rise to the level of giving them forgiveness for the harm they've given you. But if we can look back on compassion and go, I as a single human being can see that there's another human being who has been hurt and go, that's terrible. I think that at least gives us a framework for helping us move ourselves forward in a healthier way instead of holding on to the bitterness or the need for retribution or I need to be made whole from a person that can never do it. If that makes sense. Oh gosh, yeah, that really speaks to me. My counselor recently, because I really struggle with the feeling that imposter syndrome and feeling like I'm not enough. And ain't, when I get criticism, I want to get better, but then it so paralyzes mm-hmm. me that I can't see out of my yeah. own shame loop. And one time, my right. therapist Zoe was like, "Well, you can't make a dead man proud of you." Yeah, and I was like, "Wow, that's so true." But maybe, <laughs> <laughs> maybe it's possible. Yeah. Can you talk to me yeah. a little bit about? What has it been like to have that mindset when you think about your perpetrators? You know, it's interesting that I, I, I'm just realizing now as you asked that question, my parents were also perpetrators against me, not of sexual abuse, but of emotional neglect and sometimes emotional abuse and 
bearing witness to violence within the home between the two of them. I mean, these are all forms of trauma. These are all some of the aces also. And it's weird sometimes to use that term and put them in the same category as the man who sexually abused me. I would also include the the recruiters. Oh, like sure. The kid recruiters, yeah. yeah. Sure. Oh, and the and certainly the other kids in the neighborhood who were the bullies and the taunters and yeah, absolutely. I have gotten to a point in my life where I I think the best place for me to be is to give the perpetrators as little energy and mental attention and emotional energy as possible. I don't hold a relationship that is active with any of them. And I don't seek to try and build one back up to try and restore things of the past. Or, or obviously with the case of my parents, I assume the perpetrator, because he was a much older man at the time, and I, I assume that person's dead now. But like there are kids from the neighborhood who are still alive. There are probably bullies from middle school and high school that you can reach out on Facebook and try and make contact with some of these people if you want. I have no desire to do that because, A, I don't need to go back into the past and try and repair the wound in that way. I don't need to try and get somebody that disliked me in the past to say, oh, I'm a good person today. Because that's not really going to help me in the present moment at all. I'd like to focus the finite amount of spiritual, emotional, and physical energy and time I have left building proper, healthy relationships in the present moment with people around me who are good people, who fill me and nurture me with the right kinds of energy and the right kinds of support. Whew, man, that is, is, gosh, that has been so tough for me. I just still have that like justice part of me that. Oh, sure. Absolutely. Well, you know, that's a really fascinating thing. And I think it's really important to talk about because there's, there's two, I think there's two pieces that, that sort of drive that. On the one hand, there's the trauma element of it, right? And the thing about trauma wounds are they had, you know, I said early on in our discussion that, you know, my experiences, my early experiences of trauma laid down deep grooves in my neurology. I think that's actually a really helpful analogy to, to think about because when you actually start looking into the neurobiology of how our brains actually lay down memories and how our, how our brains actually build their its internal architecture the experiences that we have early on create these actual circuitries uh built of nerve endings and paths along which electronic signals and chemical signals get sent that get insulated by something called myelin so we get these neural pathways that allow for certain things to happen much more rapidly so take speaking for instance The reason why children develop usually a first language or if they're exposed to multiple languages very early on and develop a facility to speak multiple languages very easily is because those paths get laid down at a very early age and they get insulated and it's a much more efficient way for signals to get transmitted. So I'm trying to learn Spanish right now. It's a lot easier for me to speak English because those paths are so deeply grooved and worn that it's a lot easier for the signals to flow in that pathway than it is down the Spanish pathway, right? Trauma is kind of this, it isn't just kind of, is very much the same thing at a neurological level. 
trauma memories and trauma wounds, especially ones that we experience early on, get laid down with that insulation and they get very, it gets very easy for us to speak to ourselves and to communicate with ourselves in that trauma framework. And it becomes harder as we get older to not communicate in, or to communicate in different language. So instead of trauma slash English, Spanish slash, you know, functional, <laughs> shall we say, it's, it, it takes more effort to try and learn how to speak to ourselves and to speak to the world in that non-trauma oh, uh, right. way. Oh my right? gosh, that's so funny. We've had a few guests on who have talked about that because I've been saying, my, my counselor has been like, you should talk to yourself like a parent would talk to a child. I'm like, hmm. I mean, I can do that, but I don't think. <laughs> I think the, a better way to say it is true, you know, to speak to yourself as the parent that you wished you had had. Yes, that's such a good way to say it. That's such a good way to say it. I want to pivot quickly since we just have a few more sure. minutes to talk about this idea of disclosure. Mm-hmm. And you had mentioned that you got a little pushback when you started talking openly about your experience and also that I'm looking for, you had said the the number here, on average, male survivors delay disclosure for abuse uh, for about 20 years, and far too often yeah. survivors who do have the courage to finally break their silence are met with suspicion, disbelief, and even anger. Yes, absolutely. Why did you share your story? Why was it important? And, and what did people say? Because you, you just mentioned that people from your hometown... They, they, mm-hmm. the, these people might have known about what happened. Probably or Well, you know, that's interesting. I actually, you know, I've never really thought about it that much in that framework. There could very well be kids in the neighborhood that I grew up with. And I'm not in contact with any of these people, by the way. Specifically the ones who grew up in the little neighborhood enclave that I was raised in in, in, in New Jersey. The, some of them may have known about this guy. I don't know. Some, I would not at all be surprised if some of them were also victims. I'll, t- I'll, g- I'll give you another quick data point that a lot of people don't realize. Serial preferential offenders, the most dangerous ones, have on average, if they target women, if they target, target girls, between 100 and 150 victims in their, in their quote-unquote careers. If they target boys, the number is over 200. Wow. Wow. The reason being, it's easier for men, especially, although there are obviously obviously many female perpetrators, it is easier for boys to be victimized and that victimization be hidden from society than it is the victimization of girls. So the disclosure delay issue, I think, is one of the least understood but most critical parts of data points when it comes to understanding survivor dynamics and very particularly some of the unique challenges that male victims, male survivors experience. Let me preface this by saying this is in no way meant to be a comparison against survivors of other genders, female and and obviously all full gender spectrum. But cis male survivors, whether they identify as heterosexual or homosexual, there is a way in which we have sort of have constructed this narrative around maleness and masculinity that actively punishes men who come forward and disclose any kind of vulnerability and victimization, and doubly so, if not triply so, sexual victimization, and maybe quadruply so if the perpetrator is a male. 
whether the male be a peer, child, you know, child and child victimization, or an older perpetrator. There's a lot of stories that male victims are told and that we tell ourselves that reinforce our silence. Maybe one of the first ones is that silence is golden. We're told to keep our mouth shut, not to talk, oftentimes by parents and caregivers because they don't want kids, they don't want, they get annoyed when kids are yelling at them about stuff. Then we get told oftentimes by the perpetrators, if you tell anybody, I'm going to tell other people what, what's been done, what I've done to you, and you're the one who's going to pay the price for it. Your parents are going to shame you. Your community is going to shame you. You're going to be thought of as less than. As we get into older populations, let's say teenagers, and let's say there's the whole myth of the, you know, the hot for teacher thing. We get in, start getting into a framework where men are told if they are given sexual experiences, especially by women at any age, that they should consider themselves lucky, as opposed to educating people and telling them that, no, all relationships should be built on a foundation of consent and respect and mutual trust and communication. So the very idea that somehow you are normal and a healthy man just because you have had a sexual experience is a completely messed up, you know, framework, but again, reinforces that shame, that stigma, that silence. What we know from the research that's been done speaking with male survivors is on average, a male victim will not disclose until at least 20 years after their experience of being victimized. And there's a couple of things that play into that. You know, we've talked about a lot of them, but I think the two major takeaways are for the male victims themselves. Oftentimes they either feel extraordinary shame for that entire period of time. And it takes them that long to build up an inner strength and resilience or courage, or sometimes just desperation, which is kind of how it played out in my case. I was suicidal. And this is the last thing that I had never touched on in my life and talked about with anybody. So that was what finally got me to come forward and start talking about my, my story. Sometimes also though, it literally takes that long for a man to get to a point in his life where he reframes the experiences he had earlier in his life and sees them for what they actually were, i.e. abuse, as opposed to indoctrination or getting lucky or just something that that kid did to me that point in time and I can't understand it as an actual experience of abuse because he doesn't have that framework to talk about it in that way. Man, Chris, you're so eloquent at putting these pieces together. I think especially around the male experience and that's why I'm so glad that you came on the show to to share your story. Can well, Thank you. Can you talk to me about what is it mean to love and receive love as a male in your experience and just generally as Uh, I might not be the right person to answer that question (laughs) I might not be the right person to answer that question yet in my life because that's really I think the core challenge that I'm still really struggling with and I kind of feel like for a lot of men it's very much a big a big challenge because I'll be honest I don't see a lot of evidence of men actually healthily engaging in give and take relationships where they're really feeding themselves on mutually respectful compassion. And, you know, it's just, 
it's a thing that I think we really struggle with as, as men and not just, um, you know, this isn't just something that's a thing with American men. Honestly, I've been all around the world and I've talked with people from all over the world. There's just something about the culture of masculinity itself that makes it difficult for us to receive love. I think at the very core of being able to be loved means being able to be vulnerable with somebody and to be able to choose being vulnerable and taking off your armor that to, to be able to expose the reality and the, the truth of who you are, weaknesses, warts and all. And I'm not there yet. I'm getting closer. I'm making some progress, but there's definitely areas where I really, really struggle with be perfectly candid. I struggle with physical intimacy. I struggle with sexual intimacy. I struggle with emotional intimacy. And I feel tremendous shame around those areas on a constant basis. And part of my ongoing challenge, both for my own personal life, but obviously for my marriage or friendships, is to learn how to be able to be more vulnerable in ways that where that vulnerability isn't being forced on me, but that I'm able to choose the people that I trust to be the real me with and to ask people for help and support and for that emotional sustenance that I never got. Well, that is a victory. Those things are victories. And as your friend, I'm very proud of you for thank you for those abilities to, to even count your yeah. those things as victories. I think I often didn't value that about myself. I can say now I'm starting to feel like I'm making tiny bits of progress. <laughs> But it's still hard to be like, oh, I'm, I'm really good at that. Or I can see yeah. where I'm healing here to, to own my giftings, to receive love. I'm good at giving love, but don't yes. come close to me with your yeah. niceness because I don't yeah. understand that. And it's going to be taken advantage of later. So there's a lot of things. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I'm absolutely. Right now, and it looks like it sounds and looks like you are as well. As we wrap up, what would you, mm -hmm. I, I don't even know where to start on the advice, but what would you offer as encouragement to someone who's listening that might be experiencing this or have experienced this or is a loved one of someone mm -hmm. else? I will say this. When I was running an organization called Male Survivor, we came up with a, what we call the four keys to healing. And they're sort of catchphrases that I think are really, really helpful for people to know. You are not alone. It was not your fault. It is possible to heal and it is never too late. And I think those four guide posts or touchstones are something that re can resonate with every person, whether they're a survivor or their partner or survivor. It, it's just one of those things that trauma has such a deeply impactful way of wounding our self, our sense of self, our self-esteem. It's just really important to know that the experience of trauma is a universal part of being a human being, and it's always possible for us to start taking steps in a direction towards healing. I'll also say that I think it's very important for people to never give up on themselves as being a worthy, worthwhile person, uh, worthy of compassion and healing. It's important to know that the work of healing is different than the work of advocacy, and that you won't heal yourself by healing something or someone else necessarily. And I'll also sort of put in a plug for 
anything that we can do to learn about trauma itself. And there's a lot of resources out there. My website is a place where some people can find some good information. There's great books. Like I said, Judas Butler, Bessel van der Kolk has got some really good stuff. We could both probably go back and forth and name a lot of names. But I think reading about trauma and not from the standpoint of learning about other people's traumatic experiences, but trying to understand what trauma is and how it impacts us can be very helpful in empowering us to begin to take steps in the right direction. One other resource that I, is important, and maybe this will be the seed for another conversation you and I can have, talking about adverse childhood experiences and helping people understand how widespread they are and how impactful they are, I think is also a good way of helping people contextualize their personal experiences maybe and understand you know, they really, we're really not alone. Very, very many of us have stories and wounds that impact us deeply. And it doesn't have to be a story that's quite as maybe large as, as your personal story, maybe it's my personal story. Because I think sometimes people can look at us and hear our stories and go, well, my, what I went exactly, through was yeah. nowhere near that bad. Right, right. It's not a competition. Absolutely. Everybody's experiences are unique and their vulnerabilities are unique. And, you know, you don't have to have a, there's no scorecard here of woundedness that we need to look to. Yeah, and everybody's subjective experience is so valuable. Absolutely. And we're all built so differently, which is just fascinating in and of itself, how some things can affect one person differently and similarly affects somebody else in different circumstances that we wouldn't think it would affect them in the yeah. same way. Where are some resources that we can find you? How can we keep up with you? So right now probably i've actually taken a, a big step back in a lot of ways from from public facing stuff because i've needed to spend a couple of years doing some internal work hopefully i'll start to come back out sometime in the next year or two we'll see right now though the best place to find me or find the stuff that i've put out there is on my website www.christopheremmaanderson.com chris you're a massive light and that's why i'm so honored that you spent your time with us i know that these issues are will always be difficult to talk about as someone who's gone through it, even though it is such a gift to share it. And thank you again so much. I am in awe of you and the person you are. Thank you. It, it goes both ways. It really, truly does. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Jessica Minhas, and thanks for joining us on I'll Go First. We are a 501c3 nonprofit organization. Our mission is to uplift and support you in your journey of healing. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, comment, and share. And if there's a topic you'd like us to dive deeper into or would like to share your story with us, we are available on all major platforms at I'll Go First and www.algofirst.com. We'll see you next time. <laughs>